You're listening to I Fucking Love This Record, a music podcast hosted by me, the Derek Care of You. I hope you enjoy the show. We ain't got no time to waste away because we will be discussing Goat's Head Soup, the 11th British and 13th American studio album by the Rolling Stones. It was released on August 31st, 1973 by Rolling Stones Records. It was the last album to be produced by Jimmy Miller, who was a key architect of the Rolling Stones' sound during the period which began with 1968's Beggar's Banquet. It reached number one in the US, UK, and several other countries. My guest today is the co-host on the left coast of the Records Revisited podcast. It's been said that he never smiles. His mouth merely twists. Welcome to the show, Wayne Fugate. How you doing, Wayne? Hey, great, Derek. I appreciate you taking the time. We're... Uh, we're a little bit far apart here. So you are in what uh, the Tacoma, Washington area. Is that correct? Yep. Near, uh, up near Seattle. I am as always in Poland. So we're about nine hours apart, a little bit past my bedtime, but we've, uh, we've managed to make this all work to uh, talk about this record. Absolutely. How did, uh, how did Goat's Head Soup enter your life, Wayne? You know, I don't know besides the Angie that I'd heard much. I went into, I got into a Rolling Stones phase, probably I'd say my mid thirties, maybe even a little later. I'd always like I'd always preferred the Rolling Stones to the Beatles because they're much I, they're more the bad boys, all of the drugs and getting getting arrested and all of the stuff that happened um, to the Rolling Stones. But I think I was in my mid thirties and I got Keith Richards' biography, Life, and reading it inspired me to you know download all these some 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 legally and some not legally, uh, download all their records and just start pouring through it. Keith Richards' biography inspired me to really deep dive into it. And that's where I, I found Goat's Head Soup when I started listening to the records kind of from that. Like I, Beggar's Banquet is my favorite Rolling Stones record. And that string of records from Beggar's Banquet to Goat's Head Soup is hard to beat. Oh, agreed. So I think you and I are pretty close in age. I think I'm only a couple of years younger than you. And I feel like I probably have a fairly similar relationship with the Rolling Stones where I knew plenty of their songs without ever having committed to listening to any of their records. You know, I knew a lot of their 60s hits because my parents were into listening to, you know, oldies radio. So I knew some stuff from that and I knew the stuff that was on rock radio. But I think this may have been the first Rolling Stones album that I sat down and listened to all the way through. My dad throws a party at the end of bike week in Daytona Beach every year. So my family lives in Daytona and my dad used to have a Harley Davidson and some friends would come visit. And at the end of the week, he would throw what ended up becoming a really big party. And one of the things he would do is he would buy mugs, like the plastic drinking mugs. So there weren't 10,000 empty plastic glasses all over the place. It got to the point where we started putting people's names on the mugs because everybody's drinking out of an identical mug, right? <laughs> so <laughs> that way people can tell whose beer belongs to who. And they would put nicknames on the mugs. And one year my stepmother put on my mug, Dancing with Mr. D as the name for me. And I wasn't familiar with that reference. And so I'd asked her, I'm like, you know, what does that mean? She's like, oh, it's a Rolling Stones song. It's like, oh, okay. So I thought, why not? So I ended up picking this up. And I don't know if I listened to her vinyl copy or immediately, or if I just went out and got it, but this was the first Stones record I think I ever listened to from from top to bottom, and I would have been in my early 20s, I think. This is one that just sort of has stuck with me. I don't know if it's necessarily their best record, uh, as much as this just gives you everything you want from the Rolling Stones in one record. Yeah, I mean, I think it's 
Angie's probably the big hit that everybody knows. I think Heartbreaker is the best song on here. That's the one thing that from doing our podcast, I just want to listen to whole records from now. I can't listen to playlists anymore. I always want to put them in order of how much I like them. But I think there's, <laughs> I think it's pretty standard. It it doesn't have, like, like you said, I, there's nothing, it's not Exile on Main Street, but when you look at Exile on Main Street, they got a little, they meandered a little bit. And it, I think it went 17 tracks or something. Um, yeah. But I, I like Beggar's Banquet, but it's it's much, it's, I think it's for how different it is and how I, I, I always consider it kind of brave for probably what was that, the late 60s to do basically the first alt country record. Um, this band was as big as anything in rock and roll. And they, they do, you know, songs like Factory Girl and Dear Doctor. It was it was bra- and then like I say, my, no expectations and salt of the earth are underappreciated. Well, let's go ahead and jump into the track by track analysis of this record. So, side one, song one, the aforementioned "Dancing with Mr. D." This has a great bluesy rock riff just to open, and it feels very New Orleans to me. It's got a really great jumpy bass line and semi-creepy lyrics, I guess they're supposed to be. He's having a little tryst with the devil in a graveyard somewhere. I think it's a, just a fantastic way to kick off this record because they just went through that really great run. This could probably be considered the very end of that great run. It sounds a bit different when they, from what they had been doing. This whole album feels a little bit more uh, funk-influenced as opposed to blues-influenced, even though this does have a nice bluesy riff to start. And I just, I love the song. And of course, the connection with Dancing with Mr. D works for me. Those are a few funny little things that he likes to do with his voice. And, and on this one, he's just, he's doing a thing. And I really like it. I think this is a, a great way to kick off the record and uh, really a fantastic song. What do you think about this one, Wayne? I agree. And that's always, I think initially when I heard it, I assumed it was maybe a drug reference. But yeah, when you listen to it and you and you hear the lyrics and you read the lyrics. And I, I, I guess what I love about it is the is how he associates dancing with death. Because the Rolling Stones were, I mean, there's they're into sex and drugs and all of the things that go on with rock and roll. I mean, they're playing, they're living this very risky life. And so that that image of a dance, like it's going back and forth and that there as far as songwriters Keith Richards and, and Mick Jagger to me are right I can say I, I like their songs better than Lennon and McCartney in a lot of ways hmm. yeah I, I grew up a Beatles fan because that's some of the first records I remember listening to listening to my mom's Beatles records but I think I've come over to the dark side uh, in the yeah. years since because uh, I really like the Beatles I hardly ever listen to the Beatles and I'll throw on the stones all the time absolutely me too so let's move on to track two 100 years ago went out walking through the wood the other day and the world was a carpet laid before me Smell sweet and strange Seem about a hundred years ago Mary and I We were set up on the gate Just gazing at sunrise And the sky 
What do you got for me, Wayne? This one has a very, like, uh, it's got this really mellow, easy vibe to it. Um, and the whole idea of, you know, everything 100 years ago was better. It just ha- But it had, just has this real pastoral, easy kind of feeling as you sit there and listen to it. And I like the use of the, what I'm, what I see is being listed the clavinet. So another type of electric piano. Yeah. And that's Billy Preston, I believe. Yeah. He's all over this record. And so doing different types of keys. And I find just looking through, I think a lot of what I like about this record comes down to his contributions to this record. That clavinet is really cool and it doesn't have a real nostalgic feel. And I think one of the differences here where we see between Americans and Brits, because I always took the, you know, 100 years ago to be a bit of an exaggeration, sort of the, uh, you know, it, it felt like 100 years ago when I was a kid, you know. Yeah. But because there, I really think he's saying 100 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> and that's just way too far back for us to even think about. So uh, this is a song I kept waiting to break out into just a really long extended jam that never quite arrive. There are extended musical passages here and Jagger tends to just sort of, you know, bebop over the top of them, it feels like. I don't know. It just this felt like it was just ready to break out into a six minute long jam, which I'm kind of glad it doesn't quite go that far, but there's times where I feel like they just get cooking musically and then kind of go on to the next thing, which is fine, but I just I expected a little bit more every time I hear it in my head. So I don't know if that's maybe something they do live. Yeah, and I, I feel the same way. I always feel like when it ends that just like you're saying, I feel like there's it ends suddenly. There was there was more they could have done. All right, then. So let's move on to track three, coming down again. Share your thoughts. There's nothing you can hide. She was dying to survive. This is, I know, credited to uh, both Keith Richards and Mick Jagger, but I believe this is in reality just Keith Richards. Uh, he even sings this one. It's a, a little bit of a piano ballad, and it's it's kind of dirty. He claims it's not really about him stealing away Anita from uh, his former bandmate, even though that's exactly what it sounds like. <laughs> this is probably the closest to a trifle on this record. It's an okay song, but one that occasionally I will skip just because it's just just a little too slow and Keith Richards' voice doesn't do a whole lot for me. It's not a bad song, but meh. what do you think about this one? Well, and I guess what always sticks out to me is I think it's a, a poor choice for a Keith Richards song. Like, um, I guess it started on Between the Buttons. He kind of did what would be considered co-vocals on a couple songs. Um, and then he does the first verse in Salt of the Earth on Beggar's Banquet. But then he he gets, you know, mostly he'll get at least one song. So he gets, uh, I want to say, You Got the Silver on uh, Let It Bleed. And of course, his his best performance is Happy on Exile on Main Street. This sounds like a, a song that I've heard before from the Rolling Stones. Um, in fact, there's another song on here that I think it's very similar to. And Mick Jagger can do this. Like, it's a walk in the park for him. Keith Richards' songs should be raggedy, full of swagger, 
Um, I mean, the one of the best lines ever, never kept a dollar past sunset. He's he and, and then uh, his work on um, some girls he does before they make me run. Those are Keith Richards songs. That's what I associate with Keith Richards. So this piano ballad, this very, you know, slow piano ballad is something Mick Jagger could knock out of the park all day, every day. But uh, there's another song on this record that I think would have been a better choice for Keith Richards. I look forward to hearing which one that is. Let's go ahead and move on to track four. Do, 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 Heartbreaker. What do you think about this one? I think this should be a bigger Rolling Stones hit. I, I think this should be much, I mean, right. I don't think this is on 40 licks. It should be a more known song. Like uh, this is full of so much. I mean, I get it. has social commentary. I mean, the first verse, I mean, how sad is it that that first verse in that song is still something we, we talk about today, Yeah. Um, but the whole thing. And then it, and then all that aside, it's just two verses and it gets into this very earth winded fiery kind of jam. Uh, I know with a, a whole horn section and they just go on for forever. And it just with the do, do, do's and Mick Jagger scatting over different parts of it. And that great horn section. I know Bobby keys does most of the saxophone work. And I know from reading life that most of the time Keith Richards sneaks him in and does sack because Mick Jagger didn't like him, but mostly because he was Keith Richards heroin buddy. <laughs> okay. I didn't know that part of it. Oh, life is a great, that's a great book. I mean, the one thing I learned about Keith Richards from reading that book is he, everything good that the Rolling Stones did was all his idea. Wow. And he told you that? Yeah, in the book. If you, you have to read the book, but very much so <laughs> Keith Richards, everything, every, every, all the good ideas, those were his. Well, that's weird. All right, then. So, yeah. Well, thank, thank God he was there to tell us about that. So um, that's good. I love this song. And I 100% agree with you because I've never tried to rank my favorite Rolling Stone songs. But I think if I would, this is definitely in my top five. I, I love this song. I, I love the the organ at the beginning or the electric piano, whatever it is that, you know, the the uh, the keyed instrument that we hear from the beginning and uh, just the riff. And uh, like you said, that extended jam at the end. And it's just all, it's all great. This is a fantastic song. Yeah, absolutely. Everything that you want the Rolling Stones to do, this song does it. And it's just, it's great. I think this was really the, the song that hooked me into this album uh, beyond the, the opening track. I'm sure I had heard this one before. This is one you will catch on on the radio on occasion. Just something about the just the where it is, especially coming after such a slow song, and then it just bursts you right back into the album before we get to the end of the first side. And it's uh, yeah, it's it's an all timer for me. Oh, absolutely! I, the, I this is definitely in my top ten favorite Rolling Stone songs. And I like to say from our podcast, I couldn't help but put put a ten next to this and circle it. This is. Definitely my favorite song on this record. <laughs> yeah, if we were to do this record, this would also be my 10, without a doubt. So let's go ahead and move on to track five, Angie. With no loving and our souls and no money and our course. You can't say we're satisfied. 
This is the big hit from the record. This is the one I think everybody knows. And this is, I think, one of their best ballads. I, I really like this song uh, quite a bit. And if, if we were to do like a you know, top 10 rockers and top 10 ballads, this one would definitely be in my, in my top couple uh, when it comes to ballads, probably in a top two or three. I have a memory of listening to this a lot for some reason during my freshman year of college, which was in 1990. Uh, I had a friend who brought a bunch of CDs from, but he was, he was into classic rock. And so I remember making a kind of a mellow tape uh, to date it even more. Um, so in having this and the doors and a couple other things that I don't quite remember now, but so every once in a while I'll hear Angie and I'll have this weird flashback to freshman year of 1990, <laughs> which doesn't, doesn't quite fit and there's no reason for it to be there. But I think this is a beautiful song. I really like Mick Jagger's vocal performance in this one. I think this is when, you know, cause they would like to do the country songs like you had mentioned before and not always alt country, but there was like their kind of weirdo British version of a country music song. But he would, he would always try to do kind of a Southern accent. And at yeah. least he doesn't do that in this song. I think this is probably the most successful country song that they've made because they don't try to make it sound like a country song. I love the strings in it. I think this is one that I, I would wonder when I would go back to listen to it, if I would like it a little bit less just because it, it is the radio hit uh, there is a lot, a lot of that, let's say, pop cultural baggage that goes with it. But I still think it sounds great. What about you? Yeah, and it is a great song. And there's no no denying that. I think it's, um, when I think of it in a sequencing issue, I mean, they put the first single is buried on the uh, on the end of the, the first side. In fact, the best two songs, I think, are are at the end of the, of the first side. That's pretty, I mean, that you have to say, that says a lot. But I... And this is the part that always gets me is, I guess what, just like you said, there is something to it being this big hit and, you know, everybody loving it. And so there is when you when I did that big deep dive on on the Rolling Stones and discovered Girl with the Faraway Eyes and all this stuff that's buried in, in you know, on all these other records, then this one does suffer from that. So I get some it gets a bias from that but also there's a there's this and he portrays this struggle you know it's almost like these two homeless you know people in love and this and you know the harsh world and Mick Jagger ultimately has never struggled he's from a good family because the greatest rock star of all time but yet he still is able to to sing from that perspective i always mark it down for him not really knowing it. he has never met struggle <laughs> yeah that's for sure so uh yeah you can't think of pe many people who are more privileged than this guy right out of the gate and, and it wasn't like he was in a, a string of bands that didn't quite make it i'm sure yeah. this was like his first legitimate band and didn't he and and richards meet when they were like two yeah. or something and you know well i think they i know they met in college and that's where this took off but yeah i don't i mean from reading that what i have read he's from a good family and he's never you know upper middle class family and went to college and became the greatest rock star of all time. So it's not, he, he's, he had the golden ticket and that's fine. But I, so I do, I want to give him some credit back for being able to write from a perspective of struggle, having 
no idea what it's about. Sure. You know, because then also you also left out that he did meet Keith Richards, who had all these fantastic ideas for this band. <laughs> yeah, that's so. true. What would have what would have become of him if he wouldn't have met Keith Richards? We'll never know. <laughs> <laughs> that brings us to the end of side one of Goat's Head Soup by the Rolling Stones on I fucking love this record with my special guest. Wayne Fugate. So Wayne, I had your co-host Ben, uh, Ben Montgomery, on an earlier episode. So uh, if anybody has continuously listened to me, they may know a bit about uh, Records Revisited. But why don't you tell me more about uh, your role on the show? What are you What are you doing on Records Revisited? I'm uh, I'm like you know how uh, in football and baseball they have a the, there's always two guys in the booth and one is the play by play and one is the color guy and I'm the color guy. I don't have all of the, the interview skills like you and Ben. And so I'm just there to try to add something interesting about each of the tracks. And I take great pride in that. And when I'm able to, I guess the biggest thing for me is when I'm able to, you know, listen to a song and hear something, whether it be, you know, the lyrics or some sort of a perspective. And then uh, every time I hear the, the guest or Ben say, I never thought of that then I just, my heart grows like the Grinch three sizes. <laughs> yeah. I haven't listened to a lot of the earlier stuff, but I've been, I've been pretty, I've been consistently listening for probably the last six, eight months. And your guys, this is always the first in my queue. If, if there's a new record revisited, that goes right to the top. I, I enjoy what you guys do. Well, thank you very much. You guys are doing really good work and, and you guys have a really great rapport and I can tell, so you guys have, you and Ben have been friends since uh, high school or before high school, it sounds like. I think we went to the same elementary school, but didn't know each other. Same junior high, a little bit, didn't know each other. Kind of met through some other friends in high school. And and we both have a, uh, we both love the history of things. So obviously I, I, there was a point when I, I used to read the baseball encyclopedia um, and so, and music and baseball and, and history of things. We've always had a connection like that. Um, but yes, we've known each other since I would say probably the 10th grade. And so you guys have just a real natural rapport and a lot of, it, it never feels too like inside jokey, but every once in a while you can just tell you guys are talking about really old stuff, even though you're not, but you know, it's, you can, you can, you can feel the history in the way you guys talk and that is one of the things I really like about the show. And I just got done listening to your episode on Nirvana's Nevermind. So I know this episode won't run for quite some time, but I did just just recently listen to that. I didn't do the play at home game with that one. I was just listening, but Breed is my favorite on that as well. So I think your your top two were my top two. I think we were in nice. agreement, at least on those two. So yeah, Breed. I was hoping somebody was going to say something good about Breed because that, that song fucking rocks. Yeah. So. That was a lot of fun. I could say um, the the guest David Bournet picked that, and um, we just actually recorded last night another one from that same year and that that same era. Soundgarden's "Bad Motorfinger." I could do that stuff from the early '90s. You know that hard rock C- Seattle music every day, all day. Yeah. So that was all my second year of college, first year of college that came out. So that has a a lot of sway with me as well. I just got done editing my episode with Bad Motor Finger, which is going to go up in a couple of weeks. I really enjoyed your 100th episode quite a bit, and I'm not a fan of the of the Smiths, but that was one of the first times it was just you and Ben again. Uh, you didn't have a, a co-host that time, or a special guest, I should say. I just What I loved about that was your clear affection for 
the show, for that album, for each other, and without ever getting too maudlin about it. And it was just, that was a fantastic episode, uh, which was, you know, still on brand. You guys were still doing the normal stuff that you do. And I know it started without, you guys didn't have guests to begin with. Yeah. Do you like the, the aspect of having guests? Do you think that that's helped keep the show going? Or would you rather go back to the uh, to the old days of it just you being you and Ben? No, I think it I it is much better. And I it, that third person gives a, a completely different perspective that you that you know you're sometimes not even prepared for so it keeps you thinking and then it also you know looking at it from from a different perspective when somebody has different opinions it was fun um, I always tell Ben when he when he has if he has and he doesn't have very criticisms very much but I always tell him he gets what he pays for because we just do it because we we're having a good time but having the guests is much, is much better. And it, it is, I, it's added a dimension to it that I think it needed because it could, like you said, it doesn't, there's a, there could have been more inside jokes. It could get boiled down to just two old high school friends who start rambling at some point. And so, um, but we did do some fun stuff that I do wish would come back. Like we had a battle, we battle uh, two albums from the same artist against each other. And I won both times, which I don't think he likes to mention because uh, he kept making up all kinds of rules to try to win. And I used his <laughs> rules against him. And, and I had uh, the, the one that I loved was uh, we did uh, Let It Be by The Replacements versus uh, Please to Meet Me. And I had Let It Be. And he made up this rule about Sacred Cow, like because I had somehow vetoed the first time we did it with, it was the best journey album and I had escape and he had frontiers. And I think I got mad at, I got tired of some diatribe on faithfully and I vetoed it. So he, he put in a rule about you have the sacred cow, no one can, you know, touch it. And I saved mine till the very end and beat him with it. And he was, you could just the way he deflated when it, when I said that I was using it at the last song, he just crumbled we don't do that anymore, and I, that was the only thing I miss is battling because I was two and zero. Oh. I don't think I listened to either of those, so I'm going to go. I don't know if there's much. I don't know if those are left, but yeah, the the journey journey was the first one, and then the replacements. We picked an album, and then we we went back and forth on which one was best. That sounds like a lot of fun. I'm gonna see if they're still if they're still available. Oh yeah, harass Ben. He's got to he's got to send you the. I'm send you the audio. He saved it. I know he does. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. Let's flip this bad boy over. We have side two, song six, Silver Train. What do you think about this one? This is the one that I would have had Keith Richards sing. It has it's it's very bluesy, but it has this this swagger to it and this kind of a you know raggedy kind of coming you know could come apart at any minute, but they all hold it together. And it just has much more of a feel of of the Keith Richards songs that I that I that I had mentioned earlier before they make me run happy. Uh, you got the silver. It it fits in much better. Yeah, I was thinking about that and this would have been my choice as well because this is another one where they're trying this is a little bit more country than Angie. I think this has a little bit more of that sound to it and there's really not much lyrically. I think there's like 10 words in this entire song. 
And again, glad he didn't try to do the the ac- the accent. But him having sang Angie, and then I think if you know Keith sings this one and opens up side two with that, I think that does work a lot better. It's, it's a it's a good song. There's just not a ton to say about it because there's there's really no lyrical content, and it does uh, have that feeling like at any moment this could go off the rails. Yeah. And that's Keith Richards. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go ahead and move on to track seven. Hide your love. This is like the most Mick Jagger singing at the beginning where like if you're going to do a, a Mick Jagger impression and you're going to make it kind of silly, this is the song you could sing at the very beginning. Just he, he, does, he doesn't seem fully invested in the, in the vocal at the, at the top that you could sort of make fun of this song a little bit. But uh, I like this one. I don't have a lot to say about this one. And I'm, I'm finding a lot of times with, uh, with records, like if you're talking about like side two, song two, that's the one that seems to be the most like they may bury stuff that's not great towards the end, but the ones where it's like, eh, this isn't bad, but I don't know what to do with it. Then that's side two song too. So what do you got for this one? This is a staple of the Rolling Stones. There's always an old blues, like, you know, classic blues song. And uh, this one, the things that stand out to me are the, uh, the piano. And I don't know if it's Ian Stewart or Nicky Hopkins, but the piano in this is great. And then the the lead guitar riffs that come in and out of it. Mick Taylor was a was an incredible guitar player. Um, they were lucky to have him. Yeah, yeah. This is their their probably their most bluesiest song, and one that you would almost be able to hear a little bit earlier in their career. May sound a bit different, but I think that that's like one of their standard approaches, especially from the beginning of their career. Let's say. Oh, absolutely. So, track eight, Winter. What do you think here? And this is the one that I'm, this is what I was talking about with coming down. This has a, a very standard Mick Jagger kind of slow down song. And you can see this is right. This is just something he's become good at. Like he, he can do this. I, I would imagine in one take uh, on his way out to catch a plane to some fancy destination. <laughs> For me, this one's a little bit Van Morrison esque. It has just that feel to it, and I mean this in the best way possible. I, I am a fan of Van Morrison, so and this sounds like something from the late '60s, and it's just got that nice mellow vibe. Like you said, everything that they try to do in "Come Down Again," I think they successfully do in "Winter," yeah, and uh, with the exception of "Let Keith Sing," <laughs> and and I think that's what "Coming Down Again" is has it going against it is Keith singing. Like I say, I think Mick Jagger would have made it 
could have taken it to another level that Keith just, it's not in his, he can do lots of things and singing sad, you know, ballads, you know, where you're contrite about stealing your girlfriend from your, you know, lead guitar player. Yeah. Well, I guess we, we all have our lane and he, he didn't find his in that one, but uh, yeah. Yeah. So I, as much as I like this record, the more you're talking, I can see where all, all these little places, it could be a lot better. <laughs> uh, but here, so I, I, I do really like this one and I, I like his vocal performance in this one. And this is a, just a good, this feels like one that could be put on a soundtrack, you know, it'd be in the background of, of a particular scene that you would like, oh, right, that's the Stones, you know, one of those kind of things where you, you're, you know, this isn't one that's normally a part of the conversation. And I could see this being used successfully in a movie or something because it doesn't have all that extra baggage with it. Oh, yeah. But it does have that vibe to it. Oh, yeah. I mean, like I say, I mean, and then all the references to Christmas and, and the Christmas trees in California. I, this could have so been in a movie. Yeah. So moving on to track nine. Can you hear the music? And this feels like some leftover psychedelic stuff. Yeah, like it should have been on Her Majesty's Satanic Request or something. It uh, Definitely when they were in their uh, Eastern mysticism phase. Yeah. I don't know how much I like this song, but I like that it's placed on this album because as we've said, this album gives you everything that the Stones do. Like everything that's there is on this record. So this having their little psychedelic tune right here towards the end you know, bearing it second to last track works for me. Whereas I don't necessarily, I don't dislike the song, but I don't really like the song, but I like the placement and I like it being there, uh, especially when I'm just listening to it all the way through. Like you said, you don't like to listen to playlists or let's say greatest hits with the stones. You want to just sit down and listen to records. And I think this being on here improves the record just by being there. What do you think? Yeah. The, I, the same, like say listening to records, um, not everything is a hit, not everything, and not everything works. I think I've, I've come to enjoy that, you know, that enigma, like why did, why would they put, because this song doesn't have, I mean, repeating, he repeats the chorus more than he does anything else. Um, and he, he, they kind of fade away. They got a triangle in this kind of Eastern, <laughs> you know, wh whistly kind of, you know, not a sitar, but that's what's missing. I, I believe that would have put it over the top. Maybe even they said that's too much. No, nope, take yeah. the sitar out. But yeah, the, not everything is gold. Like that's, I think every record has some, you know, has something that would be considered your least favorite. This is probably not my least favorite because I do think that uh, Coming Down Again was just a poor choice in the way they, they handled it. But uh, this is another one where there's just, I think it makes you appreciate some of the other stuff more. Yeah. And this is definitely my deuce as well, probably. <laughs> We're going to throw it back to that. Whereas, like you said, I think the thing with when you're putting together an album as opposed to putting together like a greatest hits package is is you have different moods and movements and places for things to be. And I think you, you need a track nine and track nine doesn't have to wow you, you know, it just needs to make sure that that place is filled. And 
it brings you on to the next song. And I, th- I think it does that well. So, it, you know, he does really just repeat the chorus the whole time. Another one that's kind of lyrically trite, but musically is it's fine. Yeah. All right. So that brings us on to our final track, Star Star. What do you got for me, Wayne? This just shows like how much attitude, because this was 1973. This is like in 1973, this would have been considered, I'm sure, vulgar. And not only vulgar, but they like start to name drop actual people. Uh, Alan McGraw, Steve McQueen, John Wayne. At this point, they're the Rolling Stones and they don't give a shit. And they'll do. And this one just has this has all the attitude that you love. And I love how they started with that great Chuck Berry-esque. Uh, guitar riff because that's where they come from too so to end the record with something that throws back to to where they started but also pays you know and i guess it pays tribute to Mick jagger's west coast strange it's it's just it's great it's a great way to end it and it's just a it's it's like a big middle finger to everybody it's definitely a great closer and i have that you know that great chuck berry opening and you know so we it, this album really takes us through everything they do, and and you, you have to have your 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 Chuck Berry workout if you're Keith Richards. Oh, yeah. You know, he's got you got to have at least one. And, and I like how we have that you know, total like late fifties opening, and then just this terrific filthy. I mean, even today this song is pretty filthy. I think the only thing they compromised on was the title. Yep, absolutely. What would have Trent, what would have Trent Reznor done if they had if they stolen it already they'd had the title out already <laughs> call it because i i, I want to say that the what was it the president of atlantic was like no you cannot put a song called Starfuckers on your record you cannot do that so they they let them keep the song i think any other band probably would have found that song on, on the on the cutting room floor yeah i yeah if it wasn't on rolling stone records i think yeah. it would have been edited more heavily because i believe let's see i'm just looking at the lyrics yeah. I bet you keep your pussy clean. Hmm. Yeah. Honey, I miss your two tongue kisses. Like, like talk about just letting it, like just letting both barrels go at the end. Like, you know what? Because no one else could have gotten this on their record. Yeah. I, I, they would, I, the, the label would have shut it down. Oh yeah. Agreed. How do you tell Mick Jagger? Now? Yeah. <laughs> I guess you don't. You say, well, you know, yeah. please change the title. That's, that's this, like, as close as you get. And I just love how, I had never heard this song when I first listened to this record, you know, and I don't even think I had heard rumors of this song because I just didn't read a bunch about the Rolling Stones. I mean, you know, I'd heard of, you know, Cocksuckers Blues or whatever, but so I just see Star Star. I hear a, a, you know, a Chuck Berry riff. And then I was a little bit surprised to hear this song. I was probably in my early 20s and it was like, all right, there you go. 1973. I bet you keep your pussy clean. Okay. That's just, that's amazing to me. So, <laughs> Just awesome way to end this record. Yeah. Well, let's go ahead and move on into our final thoughts. Uh, what are your final thoughts about this one? I think that it's, it's I feel like it's looked down upon. Um, and I think it's because it follows 
Beggar's Banquet, Let It Bleed, Sticky Fingers, Exile on Main Street. It's probably, it's pretty hard to look generation changing after that. And I was wondering if this was talked about in the same breath as those records. And so I went and just Googled like, you know, top Rolling Stones records of all time kind of thing. And I only looked through maybe one or two lists. I didn't want to get too far into it. But I want to say that this is on there, but it's much closer to 10 than it is to one. You know, those other records are great fucking records. And I'm hoping to yeah. talk about one or two more of those uh, in the future. But this is the, this is the one I really wanted to talk about because this is really my opening as far as listening to a record from the Stones as opposed to just hearing a single on oldies radio kind of thing. And I think that's why I keep coming back to this one. It doesn't have that we're going to change everything about us and we're going to just be the dirtiest, filthiest blues band on the planet for a good 10 years after everybody thinks we're washed up, you know? So it doesn't have that. It doesn't have the, 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 the scope of some of those other records, but this is 10 really good songs, you know, ranging from fucking great to really good. And it just puts you through the paces and it gives you everything that you want from a Stones record. And I don't think you can ask much more than that. This is when I think you can just kind of put on and keep on and keep on, keep on in it. So I, I really, I really love this one. Yeah. This, like I say, it's as good as it's, it's a Rolling Stones record. It's, this is a really good record, like I say, but it's, it's definitely tough to, to say, you know, to really, it's gotta be tough to put it in in a higher category when you like I say, it's following exile on main street. Is there anybody, I've never heard anybody say, Oh, that's, I hate Exile on Main Street. That thing sucks. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and what and and that was following Sticky Fingers. I mean, with Bitch and uh, I think as Wild Horses on there. Yeah, uh, there's just a ton of you know Brown Sugar. I think is on there. That I mean, there's so much. The records preceding it were so great that I think it takes it gets a critical eye that maybe it doesn't deserve. Yeah, well, I think some of those are generation defining records, and this one is just a really great Rolling Stones record. And I think that's the difference. Yeah, And it also makes it feel like a little bit of an underdog. And I think easy to love because of that. Oh, absolutely. Like I say, I love Beggar's Banquet and it's the same type of thing. It may not be the record that everybody uh, would go to, but it's just as a to- overall, it's my favorite. Uh, for my listeners out there, why don't you tell us what's your favorite Rolling Stone record? What's your go-to Rolling Stones record. And after you're done with that, make sure you uh, like, subscribe, rate, review, whatever it is that you're supposed to do to get people to listen to your show more. Uh, Do the same thing for Records Revisited. You can hear Wayne and his buddy Ben and usually a guest talking about some fantastic records as well with the hook being that they have to uh, rank them from the, uh, the number of songs and you get to hear some real existential dread and crises from the guests, especially trying to put some of their favorite records in some, into some type of order. It's fantastic. I really appreciate you taking the time. And I apologize for some of the uh, internet issues I have had, which hopefully I'll be able to edit out and nobody else will know what I'm talking about. But thanks for stopping by, Wayne. Oh, it was my pleasure. This was great. Thank you for listening. You can find all of our episodes at lovethisrecord.com. Intro and outro music by The Ashes of Grissom. And thanks as always to original patron, Mark Evers.